Time again on Coast Access Radio for another Aviation Past and Present with our friend John Skeen. He is here. Welcome, John. Good afternoon, Todd. A pleasure to be back again. We're always delighted to have you and your knowledge. Now, this particular program, I don't think we've ever really had no, a guest this, before. This is the first time I've had a guest speaker. And I'm delighted that you have, a, have and had a guest speaker. We'd like to find out who he is. It's a bit mm. like, what's my line? <laughs> Come in and sign in, please. So, John, if you would like to introduce your guest today. Mm, certainly. This afternoon, I'm delighted to have a gentleman called John Lanham. And I have known John uh, both professionally and through aviation for a, a few years now. And I would just like to say that he's one of the pilots who flies Peter Jackson's aircraft, particularly the ones with the rotary engines, which um, are an interesting device. And uh, perhaps we could just let John have a go at talking about rotary engines and airplanes in general. Welcome, John. Welcome. Thank you very much to you both. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's always very nice uh, to talk about uh, one's interest, whether it's cars or aircraft or whatever it may be, your hobby, really. So I'm obviously a passionate pilot. Uh, I've been a pilot for a, a very long time, about 60 years, in fact. I, the anniversary of my first solo was last year. I was just telling John before. And I've been uh, in the military, in the airlines, at CAA, um, but really uh, I've been interested in um, military, sport and recreational aircraft for all my life. And I've been a display pilot uh, pretty much for most of my flying career, uh, flying in air shows. It was a great interest of mine. began in the Air Force when, when I <coughs> was able to display a number of Air Force aircraft um, and that has extended then into the civil world. So I've flown quite a number of uh, civil warbirds and sport aircraft <clears throat> and have the great privilege now, a huge privilege, uh, of flying the Peter Jackson collection, which is an extraordinary collection, the, the, the finest collection in the world of World War I um, aircraft. Where does he store the planes, John? The majority of aircraft are at Masterton. Um, there is a, a sort of a popular notion among a lot of aviation people that the base is Omaka because, of course, there's the wonderful little museum there which has some of our aircraft in the museum as airworthy aircraft but static. And most of the contents of the museum uh, were provided by Sir Peter from his personal collection of artefacts from the First World War. But the majority of aircraft are located uh, at Masterton, around about 35. And of those 35, a smaller number are replica aircraft, you might say, which have concessions to being modern, like more modern engines or more modern brakes. But the great majority of them are... Uh, reproductions is, is the proper word, recreations of the original. That is to say, they were built from plans with original materials, original fabric, original woods, and with engines recreated from plans by the vintage aviator. So you would really have to call them late-build originals because they mm. are perfect in every respect and identical to the aircraft that a young chap of 20 or 21 uh, would have been issued if he went to the Royal Aircraft Factory to be given an aircraft to fly to France the following day. They are perfect recreations. And we also have about uh, seven genuinely original aircraft from that period. Mm. Mm. It's quite amazing, isn't it? <coughs> it is amazing. Quite amazing. Where did, you two, where did you two actually meet, John? 
Uh, I met uh, John um, at a Christmas party oh. uh, on my first or second day at CAA, <laughs> and we went to the tug that's birthed in Wellington Harbour, and uh, I was introduced to John as my new manager. <laughs> oh, I see. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, a good venue for Christmas parties, the tugboat. <laughs> so the old boss, I see. Mm-hmm. Very good. So, and I have admired him and watched him flying the, the rotary-engined aircraft at various displays. Uh, I, I'm a member of what's now called the Wairapa Flying Tigers, and uh, I believe John's a member there as well. Mm. And so we have sort of crossed paths a few times of late. And uh, today we'd like to focus, if we may, on his connection with the rotary-engined aircraft, such as the Pup and the Camel and it's so forth. So. fascinating topic of discussion for you both. Go on. They are, really, because um, it's an interesting thing, flying warbirds. Uh, there's been a huge rise in the whole warbird movement, really, from about the 80s, when a number of military aircraft came onto the register, civil register in New Zealand, um, but it's also been a worldwide phenomenon, and and so now uh, you'll see aircraft from jets from the 50s, um, fighters from the 1940s, piston fighters, the peak of World War II technology, and more recently, uh, particularly through Sir Peter, uh, recreating history, we, we now see living examples of aircraft from over 100 years ago, the First World War, the, 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 the first aerial conflict. And, and until relatively recently, like perhaps 20 years, you could not see these types of aircraft other than uh, a very small number in museums, you know, looking rather sad and dilapidated and a bit dusty. Uh, but Sir Peter's uh, concept was to recreate history. So it's extraordinary now we can see uh, and fly and listen to really genuine examples that sound and look and fly the way these aircraft flew um, in 1914 to 1918. Mm. So talk a bit more about the rotary side of things. I know you're very keen and fascinated with this, John. <laughs> I should say John number one, John number two. Yes, I'm not sure which John. I'll be, I'll be John two then. <laughs> oh, okay. So John one. John one, goodness. Uh, I guess that's not a bad uh, title for an only child, but there we are. Um, the rotary engine. It's hard to get your head around this, but the crankshaft is actually bolted onto the aeroplane and the whole lot spins round and takes the propeller with it. And it makes a very peculiar noise at the same time. It's just, from an engineering point of view, it's just a fascinating concept. Hmm. You're talking about the early 1900s when these started. Very much so, yes. Um, And the other interesting point is that by 1919, they'd all but vanished off the face of the earth. A little, bit, little bit longer, perhaps, uh, the mid-20s, really, but mm. we, we can talk about that mm-hmm. uh, a little bit later. Mm. Well, I, I think rotaries were really a technological solution, an idea that had its time at the time. Uh, why? Well, in, engines were very primitive and anyway, <clears throat> and they were developing the concept of aero engines that had to be relatively light and develop reasonable power-to-weight ratio because the fragile contraptions that lugged them into the sky uh, wouldn't, wouldn't carry heavy engines or more than one or, or two people initially. So the rotary engine was a, an idea that appeared in, in about 1909, um, built by the French, and interestingly the French were the most advanced nation in Europe. 
um, in the 1900s, before the First World War. The Americans had flown first, but didn't do anything much with it. And so when the First World War broke out, the Americans had no aircraft particularly of their own, but the French had a significant number of of good flying types and good engines. So the um, rotary engine was developed by the French as a particular solution to the problem of um, a reliable and reasonably robust aircraft engine. How manoeuvrable were they? That's a big word. (laughs) Well, uh, yes. uh, I mean, they were different, and as the time went on uh, through the uh, the teens, 19s, and then 1920s, um, two types of engine emerged, really, the rotary engine and what was called the stationary engine. Now, we would recognise stationary engines. They were inline or V6 or V8 or something like that, or horizontally opposed, but they didn't move. Uh, later on, the radial engine appeared in the 1930s, but the rotaries were really odd in that they were rotary engines. And as John said, the cylinders were arranged around a crankshaft <coughs> and fired in a particular order, but the crankshaft was attached to the aircraft, bolted onto it, and the cylinders whirled around it. Now, that created a number of problems, obviously, which we can talk about a little bit later. It created engineering problems in the sense of how do you provide fuel and oil to an engine that's spinning around, and it created problems for the pilots because it, it, um, it was accompanied, the engines were accompanied by torque and gyroscopic effects. Mm. Whirling engines, you know, a whirling engine is a gyro. So um, that created a, a number of problems. But the reason that they were adopted so readily uh, was that they had a number of advantages. The, the advantages were that they were more reliable than other engines of the time and, and reasonably robust. Uh, They produced excellent power-to-weight ratio. They were quite tiny, a single bank of cylinders rotating around, and so that was relatively light, uh, just a matter of a few hundred kilos, two or three hundred kilos perhaps, compared to the large stationary engines of the time that could weigh up to half a tonne. And and so rotary engines might produce, for example, 100 horsepower uh, and a fraction of the weight and size uh, whereas a stationary engine with all its plumbing and, and radiators and things would weigh you know, several times that. So uh, reliable, good power-to-weight ratio, and of course because they didn't need to be cowled particularly, streamlined, uh, they were easy to be cooled. They were whirling in the airflow, so that was natural cooling. And, and because they were spinning at more or less an, an average of about, say, 1,100 RPM, they were not high-revving engines, but they were out in the airflow, so easy to call, nice and robust, good power to weight. That's why they were used. So John, number one, for <laughs> example, mm-hmm. to Hello. lubricate these engines was uh, something a little different. Tell us about that. Yeah, In basic terms, it was a total loss oil system. So the oil was stored in a tank, went into the engine, and went overboard with the exhaust, so there was no recirculation of the oil. Mm. as far as I'm aware. Not just any old oil. It was castor oil. Mm. Castor oil. Vegetable oil, yep. So what were the advantages of that Ah. to anything else? It was probably inexpensive. Well, (laughs) really, uh, there's a bit of a myth that castor oil was used because it reportedly did not dissolve in petrol. That's not correct. It does dissolve in petrol. 
Castor oil was used primarily because it was a damn good oil for lubricating engines, and it was available and, and relatively cheap as a, as a mineral oil. So that's the, the primary mm. reason that castor was used. Um, there were a few supposedly amusing side effects in that we all know that grandma's given us a dose of castor oil yes. uh, from time to time if we were a bit irregular. And there was the myth that, that rotary pilots were very regular because they were living in this mist of castor oil. We, we haven't found that, but <laughs> we fly much shorter flights than, than they do. Um, a typical operational flight in World War One might be two hours, two and a half hours, whereas our training flights or display flights are only about 20 minutes. So um, that was the, the thing about castor. Also a rumour that it caused terrible headaches. Uh, we haven't found that either, but again, short flights. Mm. And so the Royal Flying Corps' solution to that was to drink brandy for breakfast, uh, or lunch or dinner. But I suspect that the, uh, the amount of drinking that they did, which was considerable... <laughs> was more about the stresses and strains and psychological stress of, of warfare. I see. Mm. All right, well, John, number Hello. one. Hello let's again. Get, let's get on <laughs> to a type of aircraft that maybe Sir Peter flies with a rotary engine. Well, I don't know if Sir Peter flies at all, to be honest. No, he, he doesn't. Uh, uh-huh. He, he doesn't have a, a licence, but uh, his, yep. his purpose is, um, as I mentioned earlier, recreating history yeah. in these aircraft times. One of the, the special airplanes that they fly there is called a Sopwith Pup, and it's a delightful little airplane and uh, has the, the uh, rotary engine, and maybe John would like to talk about uh, his time in the Pup. Well, yes, uh, it is a famous aircraft. Uh, Tommy Sopworth was the designer, Sir Tom Sopworth later on, who who was one of those extraordinary uh, sort of entrepreneurial uh, geniuses and engineering geniuses. He was also a keen sailor and took part in the America's Cup races, which Mm. some people don't know. But he produced the the Sopworth Aircraft Company, which was probably the most successful British company and produced a, a series of, of aircraft. Um, Sop with Baby, Sop with One and a Half Strutter. Camel? Sop with Pup, Sop with Camel. Yeah, that's the uh, one, that's sort, of, it's sort of the famous one you associate with but the Red Baron, I guess. Well, yes, uh, um, and more like the, on the British side, Biggles, who you might have heard mm. of. Biggles flew a camel, and oh. you know he was a very popular boy's own sort of hero. Um, uh, written by an author called W.E. Johns after the First World War. And th- those books uh, certainly popularised uh, World War I flying and popularised the camel. Um, the, the camel was arguably, well, well it, was, it was actually the most successful British fighter of World War I, shot down more enemy aircraft than any other type. Uh, appeared in 1917, flew on into 1918, and was eventually superseded right at the end of the war by the, the Sopwith Snipe and the Sopwith Dolphin. Mm. But uh, the, the Camel is the aircraft that sort of lingers in people's memory uh, for a whole number of reasons. So Peter Jackson, Sir Peter, has one of these or more than one? Uh, we have two. Uh, we, we have a number of examples of some types, and, and we have two Camels. One is a, a reproduction uh, that's not entirely authentic. Uh, it's been redesigned slightly to make it easier to handle. But the other one we have is actually an original aircraft um, built in uh, 1919, exported to the US for a while. Um, but it is uh, has absolutely original provenance and has an original uh, Clerget or Le Clerget engine. 
and, and so it's a very, very rare aircraft. I think there are only eight surviving original camels, and ours is the only original one flying. Gosh. And this one has a name, John. Let's see this particular The one. camel? This, no, this Sopworth pup. Oh, the pup itself. Yeah. Is this Betty? We've <laughs> got a photo of the... Well, we've got three pups uh, produced in um, different schemes. Uh, Sir Peter takes a personal interest uh, in researching the colour schemes. So all of the colour schemes on all of our 35-odd aircraft are original, researched, accurate colour schemes of a, of a unit or a pilot or, or both. Oh, okay. Mm. So very historical. Mm. It's quite amazing, actually. Yes. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Indeed. If I could just uh, go off on a slight tangent here. Well, it is your program, so you're allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had the privilege, if you like, of attending my daughter's wedding recently, which happened to be in Christchurch. And strangely enough, part of the journey means going through Blenheim. And uh, at, a, at the airfield there called Amaka, there's a small uh, machine shop which actually makes uh, brand-new World War I rotary engines. Really? Mm -hmm. There's a market for it, obviously. There's a yeah. small market for it. Yeah. And uh, he's, he calls himself Classic Aero Machining Services Limited. Mm -hmm. And the gentleman's name is Mr. Tony Weitenberg, and he was happy that I mentioned him on my show. Oh, that's great. But you walk into his workshop, and it's just like an Aladdin's cave of beautifully machined parts. And I think he's up to engine number 10, mm. from memory. Mm. Uh, I assume he's got a website? Um, I we can just Google, possibly. Didn't quite get that far, but yes, I suspect he has. Cam's yeah. Classic Aero Machining Meaning Services. services. Mm -hmm. Yeah, based. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he makes the gnome engine primarily, mm -hmm. and he's actually got one that he's earmarked for himself, and he's just waiting for a kit. I think it's a one and a half strutter from America, mm -hmm. and he's going to enjoy flying behind one of his creations. So the, there we are. The mm. detail and the workmanship oh. must be just something special. Oh, it's it's the the pinnacle, <laughs> um, particularly from my point of view as a mm. as an old aircraft engineer. Yeah, you have all the facts and figures, I guess. Well, would you? Some some of them. Uh, <laughs> never claim to know everything. They're certainly unusual engines, and and uh, Sir Peter has a, an aircraft factory in Kilburnie uh, as well uh, that was um, set up in about two thousand and eight. <coughs> because there is a problem finding these engines. There are a surprising number around the world, but in museums or collections or somebody's um, attic or something like that. So they can be found, but there are not many. So the factory in Wellington was set up to obtain original engines, and then they were uh, stripped, box stripped, and overhauled to produce um, a really good engine. Then all of the parts were computer measured, um, and so, um, and then cloned. So on a number of occasions, one engine was effectively cloned into two or three or four, and, and basically as many as you would like. And, and so that's been very helpful to produce for us multiple types, like three, three Sopwith Pups, two Fokker D8 Albatross, and, and so on. Mm. So um, the vintage aviator can actually manufacture new engines and... Uh, it sort of amuses me sometimes to say that some of our aircraft are flying around on brand new 100-year-old en engines. <laughs> it's quite something. I can see 
John, number one particularly, <laughs> smiling at all this. Oh, that's lovely. It really is. Uh, yeah, the noise uh, must be something special too, hearing that. Well, you have to talk to John about the noise, but uh, <laughs> uh, he might like to talk about handling the aircraft in general, the, the torque reaction, the, sure. the blip switch and all the other peculiarities. Well, as, as we were talking earlier, they were an engine of their time and they had certain advantages. So they became very, very widespread um, in the European air forces, the French, the Italians, the Indi- uh, Italians all used them. Uh, the, the Germans copied them. German engines were, were not as advanced as French engines. And, of course, most people have heard of Anthony Fokker, who was a Dutchman who offered his services to the British, was turned down by the British, so offered his services to the Germans, who, who very happily uh, took advantage of them. So Fokker aircraft became the scourge of the British um, at various times through the First World War. And popular in New Zealand with the Fokker friendship, I guess. A lot yes, of well, the, the, the company lasted yeah. indeed till, till even just beyond the friendship. But um, Fokker was an adventurer and an entrepreneur, you know, who literally, well, you might say a soldier of fortune. Um, and uh, the, he provided in, in, engines and aircraft to the Germans right through till the armistice, sometimes unsuccessfully, and aircraft designs broke up and had difficulties in, in the air and that sort of thing, very often due to bad manufacturing. But they, as I say, they did have certain advantages, but they also had disadvantages. <laughs> the disadvantage, as John was talking about before, was lubricating the engine and pr- providing fuel to it. So uh, fuel and oil were introduced from containers, a pressurised fuel tank and, and an oil tank, and then they were pumped down the crankshaft into the base of the cylinders. That was the only way. You couldn't put oil into the top of the cylinders because the, the engine was spinning. Mm. So fuel and oil entered the base of the cylinder, travelled up through the cylinders. Uh, the, the, the fuel was burned, of course, to provide combustion and spin the engine. The, the oil also travelled upwards. And the, the fuel was burned, uh, of course, and exhausted through exhausts at the top of the cylinders. And equally, the oil was exhausted at the top of the cylinder because it couldn't be scavenged. There was no way you could have a system at the top of, of, of whirling cylinders. So as John mentioned earlier, it was a total loss oil system. And it's possible uh, in some aircraft, if you set the engine up the wrong way, con- consuming too much oil, that you can run out of oil before you run out of fuel. Oh. <laughs> and, and of course, because it's a total loss oil system, the oil uh, goes everywhere. Uh, some of it is contained by the cowling to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but flying a rotary engined aircraft is a dirty, messy business. Um, both the aircraft and the pilot get covered in oil because it's literally flung out at 1,100 RPM per minute, partly contained by the cowling, but seeps back over the aircraft and over the windscreen, over the pilot <laughs> and goggles. So when you come back from a flight... Um, you, you can be covered in quite a bit of oil, yeah. and, and the engine and the aircraft are literally dripping with oil. <laughs> so that was a characteristic that had to be handled. Um, Sorry, John, I'm just having a wee chuckle. I was just contemplating the fact that there would be no rusty pilots. No rusty pilots, <laughs> n- nor rusty aircraft. And uh, again, we have a silly joke that uh, when you're flying a conventional aeroplane, if you can see oil on it anywhere, on the windscreen or engine cowling, you get a bit worried. In a rotary, if you can't see oil on it, you get a bit worried. <laughs> so that was a major mm. disadvantage. 
The, uh, the other disadvantage of interest to pilots is the, the spinning engine is a, a gyro and um, with considerable g torque and gyroscopic effects. And the bigger the engine, the greater are those effects, torque and gyroscopic effect. Mm. So in the smaller engines, say 80 horsepower, it's not too noticeable. It's there, you can feel it going on. The bigger the engine gets, uh, the more you can feel it until we get to, say, the Sopwith Snipe, which has a 230 horsepower Bentley engine, yes, Bentley of the car manufacturer, producing 230 horsepower, a beautiful engine, beautifully engineered, and in fact the peak of rotary engine technology. Uh, they didn't really come much bigger. The Germans had some bigger ones, but not nearly so successful. Now, 230 horsepower spinning in a very heavy engine creates torque and gyroscopic effect that, that totally resists you in flight. You can feel the engine uh, resisting any movement of the aircraft because... A spinning engine is a gyro, and if you think back to third form physics, those who did third form physics, properties of a gyro, if you apply a force to the top of a spinning gyro, it's processed through 90 degrees and acts as if the force was applied at that point. What does that mean in an aircraft? Well, it means if you push the stick forward, that force applied to the top of the engine is processed through 90 degrees, so the aircraft will yaw violently to the left or right. If you pull the stick back, the same thing happens, but in the opposite direction. If you pedal the rudders from side to side, so that the aircraft yaws to the left or yaws to the right, the nose will pitch up or pitch down. The bigger the engine, the stronger those effects. Fascinating. Mm. John, number one, we're almost <laughs> out of time, but I want to ask mm. this, with a rotary engine, what else... Can you use a rotary engine for? There are a few other uses. Well, I did a lot of research in that area, yes. and the thing I came up with was a motorcycle with this very small rotary engine built into the front wheel. Gosh, okay. Um, I, it's, I was just considering John's explanation of the torque effect, and maybe because it was of quite small horsepower, it wasn't that noticeable. <laughs> Yes, not quite so noticeable. <laughs> you wouldn't want to lean the bike one way and find that you were going straight ahead. So there is one of these around, or there's still some around? I believe it's in a museum. Uh, it has a strange name. It, it was built in 1921, and it was called a Megola. Megola. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. it sounds a bit Italian, perhaps. So, so it's a front-wheel drive. It was a front-wheel drive motorbike. Cool. Everything <laughs> was in the front. And I'm a bit worried about the oil spewing out maybe all over the tyre or brakes. It might be... It might have well, been a bit of a handful. That's right. It certainly would have been <laughs> exhausting. And, of course, if it was, if it was spinning, uh, obviously, in the front wheel, um, as you turned the handlebars, uh, the bike would lean uh, one way or the other, depending wow. on which way you tick, because you're applying a force to the gyro. <laughs> yeah, mm. that's quite something. You might have to go to the gym beforehand and uh, get your you know, arm muscles strengthened yeah. up a bit. it's a good way to do it. <laughs> well, time's up, really. Fascinating. I mean, you could talk hours about this in mm. Sir Peter's collection and so on. Um, Perhaps there might be a part two sometime in the future. There could be. There could well be. John and John, we mm -hmm. thank you. And you can yes. do the the uh, opposite do of the introduction, which I guess could be an outroduction. Well, I thought maybe the farewell. But, uh. Yeah, that too. Uh, John, it's been a pleasure having you on our show today. And uh, I, I know we've only really tapped the surface, if you like, of your experience. And I thank Todd for being the ringmaster, if you like. 
And uh, that's been a fascinating insight into the rotary engine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here and always nice to talk about your, your hobby. Indeed. It's great to hear. Every four weeks we have aviation, past and present, and sometimes future. John Skeen yes. and the odd guest every now and then. Well, he's not that odd. <laughs> <laughs> At Coast Access Radio, also Arrow FM in the Wadadapa. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.